Hi, this is Mike Delavan and Mike Posey, and, and you're, you're listening, listening to Word of Hope Christian Church in New Braunfels, Texas. Hi, everyone, and welcome once again. I'm Pastor Tim with Word of Hope Christian Church in New Braunfels, Texas. It's Sunday, September 10th, and this is your Sunday Sermon. We're continuing in our sermon series, Lessons from Nehemiah. Today in part 5, we'll be looking at Nehemiah chapter 5, verses 1 to 19, and we're going to talk about another challenging topic, strife within the community. But before we do, join me in a word of prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, Almighty God, we worship you, we love you, and we are so grateful for this moment today. Teach us from your word in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. As we continue in our series through the book of Nehemiah, we've learned that Nehemiah confronted a different challenge in each chapter. In chapter 1, he was faced with a personal challenge. When he heard about what was happening in Jerusalem, he sat down and wept and then broke out into prayer. In chapter 2, his challenge was political. When the king asked him what he needed, he prayed a quick prayer to the Lord and boldly made his requests. In chapter 3, he confronted an administrative challenge by positioning the right workers in the right place for the right reasons. In chapter 4, he dealt with the epidemic of discouragement. The workers were afraid of the enemies and were convinced they couldn't work anymore. Nehemiah rallied the troops to come together under pressure. As we come to chapter 5, this same community is starting to self-destruct because of some festering grievances. The workers now face a new enemy who is harder to conquer than the previous ones. The timing could not have been worse because the walls were almost done. Nehemiah has to put down his hard hat and turn his attention from the construction of the wall to the walls that were being put up between his workers. While their external enemies helped to rally the people, internal conflict threatened to divide and destroy them. You know, I'm told that when a group of thoroughbred horses face an enemy attack, they stand in a circle facing each other and with their back legs kick out at the foe. Donkeys, on the other hand, do the opposite. They make a circle and face the threat while using their hind legs to kick at each other. It's much easier to conquer and subdue an enemy who attacks us than it is to forgive and restore a friend who hurts us. David puts it this way in Psalm 55 verses 12 to 14. It is not an enemy who taunts me. I can bear that. It is not my foes who so arrogantly insult me. I could have hidden from them. Instead, it is you, my equal, my companion, and close friend. What good fellowship we once enjoyed as we walked together to the house of God. Let me ask you, what is strife? Well, one definition says strife is anger or bitter disagreement over fundamental issues. Another definition expands that to say strife is conflict antagonism, quarrel, struggle, clash, competition, disagreement, opposition, fight. These are all things that we have to deal with in our relationships, no matter who we are. And the good news is that we can learn to deal with them in a healthy, godly way. But before we can do that, we need to know what the issues are. In our text today, strife is brewing, tension is mounting, and horns were locked. Let's first look at verses 1 through 5 and find out about the complaints that Nehemiah heard. In the midst of a great work, it says in verse 1, Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their Jewish brothers. Now there's a word in this verse that sets the tone for the whole chapter 5. Do you see it? 
It's the word against. This was not just a little disagreement or a minor problem. They were not crying out against the Samaritans, the Ammonites, the Philistines, or the Arabs. They were crying out against their own people. You know, just nine days ago, Hurricane Adalia slammed into Florida's Gulf Coast near Tallahassee, then hit the Big Bend area before continuing across northern Florida and coastal Georgia and into South Carolina. After the storm, there were numerous reports of greed and people were just looting in various areas and so forth. While there were many who reached out to help, there were others who saw this as an opportunity to take advantage of those in need by price gouging and stealing. Well, that's similar to what we see here in our text today. The city of Jerusalem lies in ruins and people are powerless to help themselves. Taxes are high and because of a long drought, there was a bad famine. Most everyone has been working with all their hearts to build the walls, but there's others who are doing alarming acts of greed, which are resulting in widespread poverty and injustice. There are four different groups of people who were involved in this community crisis. The first group we read about is found in verse 2, which says, Some were saying, We and our sons and our daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. These were people who owned no land but needed food. The population was increasing. The families were growing. There was a famine and people were hungry. They were working so hard on the wall that they didn't have time to plant or take care of their crops. Next, in verse 3, we find another group of people involved in the community crisis. The verse reads, Others were saying, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. These were the landowners who had mortgaged their property in order to buy food. Inflation was on the rise and prices were going higher, and many had their homes repossessed by money lenders. Verse 4 tells us about another group of people. It says, Still others were saying, we have had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. These people complained that taxes were too high. Many people were forced to borrow money just to pay their tax bills. Though it's been a while, I can relate to that. Maybe you can too. Verse 5 tells us about the fourth group of people. It says, Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our countrymen, and though our sons are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. In short, these were the people who exploited others. The wealthy were making loans with exorbitant interest rates, and taking land, they were taking children as well as collateral. Families had to choose between starvation and servitude. When the crops failed because of the famine, the creditors took away their property and sold their children into slavery. And while it's not against God's law to loan money to one another, they were not to act like pawn shop owners or bankers who charge high interest rates when lending money to fellow Jews. This is clearly stated in Deuteronomy 23 verses 19 and 20, which says, Do not charge interest on the loans you make to a fellow Israelite. When you loan money or food or anything else, you may charge interest to foreigners, but you may not charge interest to Israelites, so that the Lord your God may bless you in everything you do in the land you are about to enter and occupy. So those were the complaints that Nehemiah heard and the people groups that were involved. Now in verses 6 through 13, we'll see the steps that Nehemiah took to stop the strife. Notice in verse 6, it says, When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. In other words, this lit Nehemiah up. It wasn't just that Nehemiah had a short fuse or a bad temper. This is what the Bible calls righteous anger. What is righteous anger? 
Righteous anger is being angry at all the things that oppose God. Unrighteousness, evil, idolatry, impurity, and sin in the world without being motivated by sin. Moses expressed this kind of anger when he broke the stone tablets of the law in Exodus 32. And Jesus was filled with this kind of anger when he saw the Pharisees' hard hearts in Mark 3, 5, and when he cleared out the temple in Luke 19. While Nehemiah was very angry, verse 7 says he took time and he pondered them in his mind and then accused the nobles and officials. The English Standard Bible puts it this way, I took counsel with myself. The Hebrew literally means my heart consulted within me. Instead of just going off on the people in the heat of the moment, Nehemiah paused, took a deep breath, and thought about it for a while. He did what Proverbs 16.32 challenges us to do. Better to be patient than powerful. Better to have self-control than to conquer a city. After thinking things over, Nehemiah decided to publicly confront the people whose selfishness had created the strife. Since it involved the whole nation, it demanded a public rebuke and repentance. This rebuke consisted of six different appeals. Let's take a look at them. The first appeal is in verse 7 of the text. It says, you are exacting usury from your own countrymen. Now that word usury in the NIV 1984 translation means lending money at unreasonably high interest rates. So here, Nehemiah reminded these people that they were robbing their own countrymen, not the Gentiles. He used the word brother four different times in this speech. Psalm 133.1 must have been echoing in his mind. It says, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. The second appeal is found in verse 8, and it says, As far as possible, we have bought back our Jewish brothers who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your brothers only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they could not find anything to say. Here Nehemiah reminded these people of God's redemptive purpose. While God's people had been redeemed from Egypt and most recently from Babylon, their fellow Jews were returning people into bondage just to make money. His third appeal was based on God's word. Nehemiah calls them on the carpet in verse 9 and says, What you are doing is not right. As we've already learned, they were going against God's clear commands. With the fourth appeal, they needed to remember their witness. Israel was to be a light to the nations, but their behavior was dark and shady. Verse 9 continues and says, Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? Because they weren't right in the relationship with God, they weren't able to make a positive impact on those around them. Instead of making people thirsty for God, they had lost their saltiness. In his fifth appeal, Nehemiah appealed to his own actions. In verse 10, he says, I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain. Nehemiah lent money, but he didn't charge interest. He clearly had integrity. And then in verse 11, he told the other money lenders to give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves, and houses, and also the usury you were charging them. In the sixth appeal, Nehemiah appealed to the judgment of God. I love verse 12 because it shows that they really wanted to do what was right and didn't have to wait and think about it. The verse says, We will give it back, they said, and we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. So since the brokers promised to obey, Nehemiah summoned the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised. This is a way of saying that the promise was not just between the bankers and the builders, but between them and the Lord. Nehemiah then concluded this special business meeting with three actions in verse 13 that lifted up the seriousness of what they had decided to do.
First, in verse 13, it says that Nehemiah shook out the folds of his robe and said, In this way may God shake out of his house and possessions every man who does not keep this promise. So may such a man be shaken out and emptied. This action symbolized what God would do if they broke their vow. Next, in verse 13, it says the whole assembly said, Amen. In other words, the whole group agreed to what had been said. The word amen literally means so be it. So it made the entire assembly a part of the decision. And thirdly, also in verse 13, it says, They praised the Lord and the people did as they had promised. So what started out as a great cry of outrage led to a confrontation, which led to a commitment to change and concluded with shouts of praise in a corporate worship service. How amazing is that? So, so far in verses 1 through 5, we discovered the complaints that Nehemiah heard and the people groups involved. Then in verses 6 through 13, we looked at the steps Nehemiah took to stop the strife. Next, in verses 14 to 19, let's talk about the example that Nehemiah set. In describing his own lifestyle during this period, Nehemiah's memoirs tell us how he behaved. He was motivated by two biblical principles during the 12 years he was the governor of the land of Judah. He was devoted to the great commandment as spelled out later by Jesus in Mark 12 verses 30 and 31, which says, And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Before thinking about how he could make a profit, he considered what was pleasing to God. In verse 15, he describes how previous governors got wealthy at the expense of the people. The verse reads, but the earlier governors, those preceding me, placed a heavy burden on the people and took 40 shekels of silver from them in addition to food and wine. Their assistants also lorded it over the people. But at the end of the verse, verse 15, Nehemiah compared himself against what others had done. And he said, but out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. Nehemiah continues in verses 17 and 18 by saying, furthermore, a hundred and fifty Jews and officials ate at my table, as well as those who came to us from the surrounding nations. Each day one ox, six choice sheep, and some poultry were prepared for me, and every ten days an abundant supply of wine of all kinds. In spite of all this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor, because the demands were heavy on these people. So you can see that Nehemiah did not live extravagantly, but instead he lived generously by providing meals for others and not using his expense account to do so. Why did he do this? Because he loved and revered God, and he also loved the people he was called to serve. That's a great example for us to follow, my friends. Start first by focusing on God and your relationship to him. And as you do, you will have more love and compassion for others, even those you have conflict with. Now, having walked through a brief exposition of this passage, let me now draw out some principles for us to ponder. First, there is a direct correlation between the effectiveness of our mission and how we treat each other. We must be the church before we can build the church. We must care for one another before we can hope to reach our city, our county, our state, our country, our world for Christ. Next, relational problems are inevitable and we can't ignore them. Even though it's painful and it may seem easier to avoid or deny relational ruptures, we must face conflict head on. If we don't, we'll pay for it because it will go underground. It will grow deep roots and bear bitter fruits. One of the pastors I was reading from this week put it this way, the first price you pay is always the cheapest. How true. 
It's painful to stop strife, but it will only get more difficult the longer you wait. Next, we must take the initiative to restore relationships whether we want to or not. Don't wait for the other person to come to you. You need to go to them. Be tenacious about this one. If you've been hurt, go and talk it out as Jesus commanded in Matthew 18, verses 15 to 18. If you've hurt someone else, go and confess what you did according to what Jesus said in Matthew 5. We're covered either way. And lastly, God's reputation is at stake when we have conflict. In John 17, 23, Jesus prayed that lost people would know God's heart of love when brothers and sisters in Christ are brought together in complete unity. Jesus said, May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. Beloved, let's be like Nehemiah and walk in the fear of God to not only avoid the reproach of unbelievers, but also to make God attractive to those who need him. And we can do that by living in loving community with each other. I came across an interesting article this week. It's called Five Ways to Turn a Disagreement into a Full-On Fight. This is what it said. Number one, tell people what they should feel. When you want to get strong emotional response from some people, just tell them how to feel. Next, tell them why they did what they did or say what they said. Thirdly, raise your voice. Fourth, focus on the past. And fifth, just walk away. I wonder how many of us have done these things. Sadly, I know I have. I want to focus our remaining minutes today on some practical action steps that you and I can take to stop strife in the community. These come right out of Nehemiah chapter 5. Step 1. Make sure it's a moral issue. Nehemiah was very angry because of the injustice he saw in verse 6. If you've been wronged and sinned against, your anger is justified. On the other hand, if you're ticked off at someone because they've done something that you don't like and it's not a moral issue, then cut them some slack and give some grace. Step two, think before speaking. If you've been sinned against, take some time to ponder what's been done and how you feel about it. That's exactly what Nehemiah did in the first part of verse seven. Anger is a gift from God that motivates us to action, but it can just as easily backfire if we just let things fly out of our mouths. Step three, meet face to face. Someone has said, Confrontation is caring enough about another person to get the conflict on the table and talk about it. Just as Jesus commanded in Matthew 18, we are to be direct with the people we have strife with. Nehemiah went right to the source in verse 8 and confronted the people with what they had done wrong. When we ignore this critical step, we often end up talking to someone else about how we've been offended by someone else. When you go to a third party, you create a communication triangle. So go directly to the person you're upset with. If someone comes to you to express anger at another person, your first question should always be, have you talked to him? Have you met with her? And step four is to seek resolution. Our goal in stopping strife or confronting conflict should always be resolution and restoration of the relationship. We should not be set on proving ourselves right and the other person wrong. We are not to defeat our brothers and sisters, but to build them up and have the issue resolved so that we can all get back to kingdom work. Woodrow Wilson once said, if you come at me with your fist doubled, I think I can promise you that mine will double as fast as yours. But if you come to me and say, let us sit down and take counsel together, and if we differ from one another, we will find that we are not so far apart after all, that the points on which we differ are few, and the points on which we agree are many, 
And if we only have the patience and candor and the desire to get together, we will. When the wall builders took these steps, the team was able to get back to the job they were commissioned to do. If we allow strife and discord to go on, kingdom work will come to a standstill. If we would follow Nehemiah's example, my guess is that 95% of our relationship problems would be solved. If we have an issue with anyone, especially in the church, let's follow these four steps. Make sure it's moral. Think before speaking. Meet face to face. And seek resolution. There's a story I recently read, and while I can't verify its authenticity, the point is unmistakable, and I want to share it with you. The story said that in an old monastery in Germany, you can see two racks of ancient deer antlers permanently interlocked. Apparently, the animals had been fighting fiercely as their horns became so tangled that they could not be disengaged. As a result, both of them died of hunger. Is there anyone here today within the sound of my voice who's tangled up with someone right now? Is there strife in your life, in your home, in your workplace, with someone in the church? Don't let it fester any longer. I love how the people responded to Nehemiah's challenge in verse 13 when it says that the people did as they had promised. What about you, beloved? Are you willing to make a promise to stop strife in your life, the church, and in your community? I hope so. In the name of Jesus and all God's people said, Amen. Thanks for listening. Join us again next time for another encouraging message from God's Word. To find out more about our ministry, look us up on the web at www.whccnb.org. Word of Hope Christian Church. Real people. A real God. Real hope.